on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, a quick reminder to send your questions and comments to unfinished at stitcher.com. We've already got some great voice memos and emails that we'll respond to in a bonus episode. Send yours to unfinished at stitcher.com. And remember, if you want to binge all the episodes of this season right now, subscribe to Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the code WITNESS for a free month of premium listening. That's stitcherpremium.com. Promo code WITNESS for a free month of Stitcher Premium. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Keep sweet by the children. Sweet. It's a phrase that was made popular by Rulin Jeffs when he was prophet of the FLDS. This is a recording of a Short Creek community pageant from 1992. Keep sweet. Keep sweet. No matter what, we all know what that means. Be full of the Holy Ghost, that we may be lifted up. God bless you all. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. And it really meant don't have any strong emotions, particularly not negative emotions. So don't ever be angry. Don't ever be sad. You just always have to be kind and sweet and happy, no matter what's going on on the inside. This is how we present. This is Shirley Draper. We heard from her in the last episode. Her great-grandfather helped set up the UEP, the FLDS's land trust. She was 16 when Leroy Johnson died and Rulin Jeffs became prophet. She says under Rulin, keep sweet was kind of a mantra. It was repeated over and over again at home and in church. Rulin even put the phrase on the chimney at his house in big letters. When I lived there last summer, I could see it right outside my window. We learned how to bottle up our emotions and not express anything, ever. No anger, no sadness, just always this pasted-on artificial happiness. Always joyful, always cheerful, no matter what happens, 
Our prophet expects us to keep sweet unto perfection today. As Rulon's health started to fail, Warren Jeff stepped in, and the mantra became more like a command. Don't complain, don't question, don't disobey. In today's episode, the people of Short Creek face a decision. They can keep sweet, or they can stand up and lose everything. Keeping sweet is first a self-discipline and humble obedience to priesthood. We will be persecuted, but the Lord expects us to keep sweet. I'm Sarah Ventry. I'm Ash Sanders. From Witness Docs and Critical Frequency, this is Unfinished Short Creek. Episode 3, Keep Sweet No Matter What. We didn't have a television. We weren't supposed to watch television. And so we had an old piano. What's really horrible is that the piano's out too. We'll forgive you. <laughs> Whenever you, yeah, hit it. Our family was very musical, and so we were performing a lot in the community. Shirley Draper grew up FLDS in Short Creek in the 70s and 80s, while Leroy Johnson was prophet. It was really kind of an idyllic childhood. It was like being raised in a village. I tell people I could count on a meal or a spanking from any one of the moms in town. They were all my moms. We were unique to the world, and we knew we were unique, but we weren't strange to us because we were all we knew. And just that sense of belonging and knowing who we were, that sense of identity, it was very strong. Shirley was an intellectual kid. When she wasn't playing piano, she was reading every book in the library. So I always had my own opinions, and I was not afraid to speak up. And did you get any flack for that? Yes. But mostly from my dad, who was horrified by it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for playing that for us. Shirley was also deeply independent, strong-willed. I didn't really want to get married. I mean, girls were 18, 19, 20. Some girls got to be 25, 26. And so I was able to hold out until I was 23. When Shirley was 23, the prophet, Rulin Jeffs, told her it was time to get married. And since she didn't have anyone in mind, he consulted God and chose someone for her. I actually wanted to be a plural wife way down the line so that I, you know, could be independent. I figured if my husband had a lot of wives, he wouldn't be able to keep track of me, and I could just continue to do what I wanted to do. (laughs) Where do you think you got that kind of pluck from, that desire to be independent, and, you know, did did that come from somewhere? Well, yes. Um, I believe my mom was always quite a feminist, in a world that um, that was not welcome. I was a feminist all the way through school and, in fact, got into arguments with my teachers about things like that. (laughs) When you were young? When I was young. And would you say the culture broadly discouraged that, or was there a place in the FLDS religion of your youth for a person like you? I would say it broadly discouraged it. We were socialized to be submissive. We were absolutely told, you know, you have to be obedient to your husband. And was that part and parcel with kind of the keep sweet 
mentality? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. You need to teach your daughters to be mild and meek. And, you know, and I just never felt the need to be that way. Rulin Jeffs was the prophet when Shirley got married and had kids. A few years later, in 1998, Rulin had a stroke. That's when Warren Jeffs stepped in and started raining down rules. Shirley watched as her neighbors cleared their homes of Gentile books and music and shunned family members who left or were kicked out of the church. What would Warren say when he would introduce these new edicts? Did he provide a justification for family separation, for example, or the dress code or... Oh, he didn't have to justify anything. You know, if God said something, that's... We don't... He, in fact, I think he introduces saying, we don't introduce a question mark where father has put a period. Nobody is allowed to question anything. The thing here, the problem that people see is that, you know, would they tell, you know, if they told you to go kill somebody, would you do it? And I would just look at him like, how stupid is that? They would never tell me to kill. I know that person. Norma Richter is FLDS, and to her, the rules Warren was asking his followers to obey were coming directly from God. Why wouldn't she be happy to follow those rules? It makes her more faithful, more righteous, closer to God. If he said, let's not wear the color red anymore, oh yeah, I, I, can, I can do that. Big deal. It's a beautiful color. I love it. It's my favorite color in the whole world. Your dress is kind of red. It is kind of. It's, it's very, more like a burgundy. Yeah. It's a little purpley, but it's, it's verging. <laughs> it's, I got to be honest, it's verging on red. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I looked at it and I thought, oh, am I going too far? <laughs> you know, but I used to wear bright red. I mean, flashy red. I loved red and I still do. But it is the color the Savior will wear as far as we see it and understand it. That's our belief. Mormon scripture says that when Jesus returns, he'll be, quote, red in his apparel, his robes stained with the blood of all the wicked people he's come back to judge. That's part of our belief system. If it isn't part of somebody else, that's fine. That is ours. And um, if he says, let's not cut our hair anymore, you know, we used to cut our hair all the time. And I just, okay. Big deal. That's easy. I didn't really spend a lot of time talking to other people about how they felt, except for the few times I would talk to my sister and my mother saying things like, this isn't our religion. This isn't what we do. We don't worship a man. Why are we worshiping a man? And, you know, they would be very worried for me that I was about to go to hell because— at the time, they were able to shift enough to make it work uh, for them. Warren wasn't prophet yet, but he was consolidating power, cutting off Shore Creek from the outside world and demanding more and more obedience. Shirley could see that, but she still followed most of his rules. The cost of disobedience was just too high. She could lose her family or even her children. I thought I might be able to just keep my mouth shut and keep my head down and stay where I had safety and belonging and and I had my family who I loved, you know, the, the sense of identity. 
Then one day in the fall of 2000, Warren stood up in church and made a declaration that really tested Shirley's faith. He just said for everybody, just pull your children out of school and don't send your kids to school because they have to associate with apostates there. And I remember my blood just running cold. And I literally, (laughs) I, I remember leaning forward and looking at the two side doors in the meeting house, and they were closed. And I remember thinking, they're going to trot the Kool-Aid in. And how am I going to get out of here without causing a scene? Like you were worried for your life in that moment? I, I really was. I thought, this is it. You know, we have devolved into a full-fledged cult, and um, he's going to start requiring people to give up their lives. And I, re- I remember that feeling of looking at those doors and thinking, how am I going to get out of here in time? Wow. And he hadn't even scratched the surface of the depths that he would go to. The year before Warren made this proclamation, there were 1,400 kids in the Colorado City Unified School District. But on the first day after his announcement, only 350 showed up. One of the schools even closed because there weren't enough kids to teach. Shirley obeyed and took her kids out of public school. But in private, she started thinking about leaving Short Creek. It was just cemented in my mind that there was no way I was going to stay there and that my children were going to be raised in this environment because education was so important to me. And I sat there and thought, their future is being robbed brick by brick by brick by this man, and I'm not going to have it. She did little things, slowly. She started talking to people on the outside, saving money when she could. She packed things from her house one at a time, a pan here, a blanket there, She didn't know what would happen next, but she wanted to be ready. Before Shirley could leave Short Creek, Rulin Jeffs died. Warren became prophet in 2002 and wasted no time cementing his control. He married many of Rulin's wives, something no prophet had ever done before. He also intensified the culture of fear he'd been creating before Ruland's death. He made church members write long letters confessing their sins, and he encouraged everyone to tell him if they saw someone disobeying the rules. He starts this, what he called the, the missionary program. And I called it the Hitler Youth because he would take these adolescent boys and he would go and he'd train them behind closed doors how to spy on their families. And they were to go visit the home and ask them very pointed questions to report back. What would they ask you? Does, does this home have a television in it? Does everyone in this home keep sweet? Does this home have any Gentile books or music in it? And those kinds of things. Um, one of the questions that they would ask, or they were supposed to ask is, does everyone in this home believe in Uncle Warren? Okay, did you catch that a second ago? Shirley said Hitler Youth, and she's not the only one who made this comparison. I, I relate to, to Hitler's times. When you hear the stories of Hitler talking to the children, the children were turning their parents in. You know, he loved 
studying Hitler. The history of what the Germans and the Jews went through with the Nazis. You look back at history with even Hitler and anybody else. What he did was one-on-one what Hitler did. So now might be a good time to mention I'm Jewish. And last summer, I was living in the former prophet's home, in a town with no other Jews for miles. I have family who died in the Holocaust. So when I heard people compare Warren Jeff's Short Creek to Hitler's Germany, I had a visceral reaction. What happened in Short Creek wasn't a genocide. So it took me a long time to understand why people were making this comparison. And it really upset me. But after lots of conversations, I realized that people in the community were trying to describe a situation where one person had absolute power and used it to turn neighbors, friends, and families against each other. A lot of followers went along with the changes, small and large. No red, no public schools. Under Warren, living the religion became a competition. His rules were tests. And it didn't take long for him to decide that most people in Short Creek were not living up to his standards. My heart has just been sorrowing over our people, as the Lord has shown me what we are going to go through. And yet, I rejoice in those who will qualify. This is an actor reading from Warren's priesthood record, a sort of daily journal he kept as prophet. In 2003, there are a lot of entries referring to his followers in Short Creek as the, quote, half-hearted. The half-hearted cannot hold back the redemption of Zion anymore. The time of the half-hearted is over. I am not here to tend you any longer in any bad feelings. I am searching for Zion. At the same time, Warren was spending more and more time away from Short Creek, building up other FLDS communities for people who were full-hearted. Places like the YFZ Ranch in Texas, where Warren's elite followers could gather. YFZ stood for Yearning for Zion. Here's Grace Ann Fisher, a former member of the FLDS. By that time, we did know there was a shipment that went out Every weekend or every other weekend, it was called to Zion. That's all we knew. So, of course, we'd do everything. We'd sew and just anything. You know, I remember giving them food when we were going hungry, you know, going and buying seeds to send. Remember, Shore Creek had been founded on the idea that it was Zion. But now, community members were sending the fruits of their labors to a new Zion in Texas. We asked Grace Ann if FLDS in Short Creek felt that they were beneath the followers at YFZ. Oh, yeah. They were the more righteous. They were the better one. We were just told they're, they've been chosen. They have proved their self. They, they pray constantly. They never get upset. They always keep sweet. The Lord is naming who is passing the test. Who is becoming Zion? I yearn for deliverance of the Lord, that he will not allow the half-hearted to come to the places of refuge, or they will destroy this work. For a while, Grace Ann and many others kept sewing and donating and keeping sweet. They were sure they just needed to work a little harder and be a little more righteous 
and then maybe they'd be rewarded too and taken to YFC. But other people didn't want to leave Short Creek for YFC. They wanted to get out of Short Creek, period. I knew I didn't believe in Warren. I knew I didn't like what he was doing. Ever since Warren told his followers to pull their kids out of public school, Shirley had been thinking about leaving Short Creek. But she had no job, no credit, no rental history. Plus, she was worried about life in the outside world. What I was told all my life about how you're not safe and you're not welcome in the outside world was absolutely reinforced by my experiences in the outside world. The people in St. George were very hostile to me. St. George is about 45 miles from Short Creek. It's where a lot of people from the community shop. I would be in Walmart looking around thinking, I wonder if one of these people would be my friend. You know, I wonder how I could fit in here. And I would turn around and find my cart full of condoms, which is the message that, you know, you plagues have too many kids and you've got to learn how to control yourselves. Plague is a derogatory word for polygamist. And then I'd be at the checkout and somebody would say, oh, is the government going to pay for this too? Because we know how you guys all out there are abusing the welfare system. And it was okay to treat me poorly because I was one of those plagues. For Shirley, Short Creek was also where her entire family lived. To leave meant being shunned and losing her support network. I was a stay-at-home mom with two special needs children and two other children, and they were all very young. And so I tell people that plural marriage worked for me. And it's in really surprising ways. And I think this is why it works for a lot of people, and that is that women need women's support. And so after, after my younger sister married my husband, I gave birth to my daughter, and she had a severe brain injury. And she ended up being in the hospital for three years. And during that three years, my younger sister was in my home, raising them how I wanted them to be raised, loving them. And I didn't have any jealousy because I didn't have any use for my husband by then. As far as I was concerned, she could have him. (laughs) (laughs) And so it it really worked, you know, having somebody to support me and and not worrying about my, my three sons at home. There was, it was, I think, probably the reason I survived all that stress you know, those three years with my daughter and and everything else that was going on. It was going to take something pretty big for Shirley to finally leave Short Creek, something that was worth risking her family over. And Warren was about to give her that final push. That's after the break. May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. People from Short Creek pride themselves on being hard workers. Ask anyone from the community and they'll tell you their construction crews literally build up huge swaths of central and southern Utah. And for years, they didn't even take Saturday off. Every weekend, the FLDS in Short Creek got together for something they called a work project meeting. Well, with uh, Saturday work project meetings, then typically you'd get up and go over to meet at the meeting house. That uh, is like eight or eight in the morning or something like that. This is Isaac Weiler, a former member of the FLDS. He described these Saturday meetings as a little bit like a church service with sermons. They would uh, have two or three speakers, you know, talk about various things. and But the main primary object of the Saturday Work Project was to uh, go around and work on community projects or projects that had been approved by the priesthood. Projects like building houses for church members, repairing community buildings, planting vegetables in the garden, all done for free in service to the community and the church. It was a tradition. They'd expect you to go to work after the meeting broke up and break for lunch and then come back and, you know, be done sometime around 6, 6.30 at night, something like that. Full day's work. What was your skill set? Plastering, stucco work. On the morning of January 10th, 2004, Isaac Weiler headed over to the meeting house like any other Saturday. How many people were there, maybe? Oh, I would have to say probably 2,500 or 3,000 people. There's a lot of people there. Wow. There was many projects going on at the same time. Sometimes 10, 10 or 20 projects, you know. When Isaac walked through the doors of the meeting house that morning, he saw something unexpected. We hadn't seen Warren Jeffs for a long time. <sighs> Seems like he'd been gone for more than a year. And then I saw him uh, walk down into the audience and talk to two or th- at least two, maybe three different men. Did you know that he was going to be in town that day? No, he, he kept that really quiet where he was. Nobody, hardly anybody knew where he was. Warren had been traveling around the country, so the fact that he was there meant something was up. We were all sitting there uh, facing the West stage, and and I was already, I mean, their tension was so high. Shirley Draper was one of the 3,000 people in the meeting house that morning, so she saw Warren walk up to the pulpit to make an announcement. I come today with a message from the Lord, a message of correction 
a message of deliverance for those who are pure in heart, a message of warning for those who still need to repent. This is an actor again, reading from Warren's priesthood record, where he entered a full transcription of the revelation from God that he shared at that meeting. Warren got up and started talking about this religion. The government of the kingdom of God. He said it was a benevolent benevolent dictatorship. Dictatorship. The one-man rule through the love of God. He started uh, talking about some men who were master deceivers. For the master deceivers among us, I have been sent by the Lord to name the names of certain men who have lost priesthood. They had committed sins. They needed to confess to him. And then he got up and started naming some names. He named four of his own brothers. There are four sons of Roland T. Jeffs the Lord has sent me to correct. My brothers David Jeffs, Hiram Jeffs. Warren had kicked people out of the church before. He did it to Elisa Wall's father and to the Bishop of Short Creek, Fred Jessup. But what Warren did at that meeting in January was unheard of a public dismissal of 21 men. And not just any men. These were leaders in the community. These were heads of massive families. And so there was a deathly silence. Everybody was terrified because if they can be kicked out for whatever, then certainly I can. Then there are other men I will name. For the Lord has read your hearts and revealed the secrets of your hearts. Roland Cook, Val Jessup. I was one that got named. Isaac Weiler. We were told to stand up. And I remember Warren calling all of these men up and then condemning them in front of everyone, telling us that they were master deceivers. Told us that we were uh, master deceivers. and That they needed to go far away and repent. And that our families were being taken away from us as of right now. And in fact, he said, don't even say goodbye to him have the family go uh, down a different aisle than the one you go out and go out on opposite ends of the building. I mean, it was, I mean, he just took took the families away from those 21 men just like that. All in this congregation, stand and raise your hand if you oppose. Tears and wailing and not one person in that congregation stood up and challenged it, not one. And this was my grandfather, this was patriarchs. These were pinnacles, pioneers who built this town, and they let it happen. This is Lamont Barlow. He was also at the meeting that day. He's still disappointed that nobody said anything, that he didn't say anything, but he gets why. They were afraid. They were scared. They were afraid of losing their families. You know, if they would have stood up, they would have been putting a crosshair on their forehead. Would their wife agree with them? Would their wife leave with them? Would they be losing their businesses? Would they lose their home? The church had complete control over their everything. And so to stand up would be to join them. And I think that's a lot of the reason they didn't. This is the part that reminds me of Nazi Germany. There were people who knew something wasn't right, but they were so scared and risked losing so much by speaking up that they didn't. They listened silently while their friends and family were expelled. 
they let it happen. And then after they left, he made us kneel down on the floor in front of him. And I just remember at the time thinking, this is it. I mean, he's asking us to worship him. The heavens and the record being kept on earth show every person in this congregation have received this message as the word of God to them. How do you think that that changed things for people in the community? Like, what were the repercussions for the people who stayed after that? Well, it was certainly a signal, you know, that everyone is disposable, that for the slightest infraction that you could lose everything. And so people um, were just doing everything they could to be perfectly obedient to watch what his family was doing and try to emulate that because in the absence of instructions, we had to kind of, you know, figure out what pleased him and those kinds of things. But the other thing, and I've heard many, many people talk about this, it put everybody on edge all the time. That was just a constant source of toxic stress that if the phone rang or the, somebody knocked on the door, that that might be, you know, somebody coming and saying, you have been told to leave town or you have been called to repent. And so, There's just this low-grade, fight-or-flight, constant stress on the community from that day forward. But I just remember thinking, uh, this is the end. I can no longer delay in what I'm doing. You know, this is it, like ready or not. I'm taking my kids and going, and if we have to live in my vehicle, we'll do that. One of the reasons it took me four years to leave was that by that time, the cost of exit was so high in terms of losing family. And I was so close with my family. And we just, I mean, we did everything together and I loved them dearly. And it had to get to the point where I felt like I could not breathe before I was willing to walk away from them. Shirley Draper left Short Creek on February 20th, 2004, just one month after that infamous January meeting. The day that you left, what was that like? How did it happen? I'd made a day that I decided that that was going to be the day. I'd finally saved up enough money that I could rent a place in St. George, and I found somebody who was willing to rent to me with no rental history. And so... That day, I got up in the morning, and my husband and my younger sister decided they needed to go to St. George that day. And I was really happy because I didn't want to have the big confrontation. Right after Shirley's husband and sister drove away, one of her brothers pulled up with a big U-Haul trailer. They packed up Shirley's boxes, and she drove around town saying goodbye to everyone in her family, talking to them for what she thought would be the last time. It was so hard. It was, you know, going and telling my mom, I know you aren't going to be able to talk to me. If you believe this religion, you will have to shun me. But I want you to know I love you and I respect you 
And if you ever want to come and see me, I've got my door wide open. I won't impose on you. I won't come to your house because I know that that will cause you to to be shunned. So, you know, this is where I'll be. Here's my address. You know my phone number. When I was on my way to St. George, um, my husband got home and I was gone and so was my furniture and, and I had left a note. And, and so he called me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, my note was pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to be part of this. And he said, well, I called Uncle Warren and told him, you know, what your note said. And he said to ask you where you're going to get your blessings from, where you think you're going to get your blessings from. And I said, well, you can tell him that God knows where I am, and if she needs me, she can find me. <laughs> he got the message loud and clear. He never tried to talk me out of my decision. <laughs> At the end of a very emotional day, Shirley pulled up to her new house and saw something unexpected. And I went to St. George to unpack, and my mom and dad and my brother Joe and his wife, Donia, <laughs> they showed up, and they helped me unpack, and they stayed there until 1 or 2 in the morning, made sure I was warm and safe, and then they left, and they never shunned me after that. And I remember thinking, man, I wish I had known earlier that they were going to do this because I would have left a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> were so, they still active or were they out? No, they, they still believed. Can you just tell me what it felt like, you know, if you remember that first night going to bed in this new place? What were you thinking? I was thinking, finally, I'm on my own terms and I'm free. I did not regret it and I didn't regret it not one second from the moment I drove away. It was such a fantastic feeling. Just having that expansion of, I don't even know who I am, and that's okay, you know? And then going back and just kind of taking out piece by piece, do I believe this? Do I believe that? What do I believe? Can I ask, though, so I'm Jewish. It's like not an identity that people necessarily know when they see me, but sometimes I think if they find out there is a shift in the way that they talk to me or assumptions that they make about me. And I struggled with that for a long time growing up, especially in a place where there weren't a lot of other Jews in Phoenix. I think I still sometimes have this pause where I'm like, do I want this person to know? Is it going to change the way they think about me? I'm wondering, like, if you ever feel that way, you're laughing. Like, do you feel that way when people, if you're like, yeah, I came from, oh. I came from the crick, I came from a plural family. Like, Absolutely. And so, and so what you've described is um, code switching, right? So you are at this intersection of two cultures. And if you're at that intersection, you are making all of these little decisions every single day. How am I going to appear right now? Which culture am I going to be part of? Who am I going to be today? And so it's so interesting because I have kept my ex-husband's name from my marriage because it's not easily identifiable as polygamist. But the second I say my name, maiden name was Jessup, they all go, oh, and that's what I don't want them to do up front, right? And I reserve that so that I have a chance of not having them have made all of these decisions about me before I even get a chance to say who I am. But 
um, the hardest part, I think, of those first five years was that I didn't want anyone to know who I was, where I came from. In fact, my big plan was to move to New York, mm-hmm. move far, far away, change my name, <laughs> never look back. But I made it as far as St. George because that was where my daughter's doctor was. <laughs> and it was really important to get her safe first. Um, and then just because I had disowned who I was, I didn't tell anybody where I was from. And it, you can't be present with somebody. You can't be authentic with them. And so you don't ever develop good, strong ties in a community. And so I didn't have a lot of close relationships, and I felt alone. Um, and then, you know, having the faith crisis as well. Because at that same time, I'm considering, it's like, so this religion that all of my life I've known, this is what God wants me to do, and it's turned into something really, really pathological, and I can no longer abide. But now what? I don't believe in Warren Jeffs, but do I believe in Uncle Roy? Do I believe in Joseph Smith? Do I believe in Jesus? Do I even believe in God, right? And so that whole structure and that inner battle goes on. It goes on to this day. You know, I don't, I don't know where I stand on that. And I'm finally okay with it. But it took me a long time to um, reconcile myself and my identity because for five years, I dismembered pieces of me and tried to hide it from the population so that I could fit in, right? And so it was, it was extremely harmful psychologically. You, you take to bleeding to death inwardly. And it wasn't until a therapist pointed that out to me that I just started saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to own who I am. It's not who I was, it's who I am. I am a person who was raised there, and I am a person who practiced polygamy, and I am all of that. And now I've also incorporated all of this other stuff, and I've learned to stop dismembering myself. But that's a journey that does not take a really quick time. You don't wave a magic wand and recover from something like that. It took Shirley five years to recover, to put herself back together and build a whole life outside of Short Creek. And lots of others who left had to do the same thing because Warren Jess had turned their community, their safe haven, into a nightmare. But for some of those who remained, the threat of the outside world was worse than anything Warren was doing. So they stayed. Next time on Unfinished Short Creek. We'll look at why many people in the community fear the outside world and why for some, that fear is still very real today. More than 120 peace officers moved into Short Creek at 4 o'clock this morning. We'll take you back to a face-off in the desert over faith and family. My grandfather, 84 years old, says if it's blood you want, take mine. Unfinished Short Creek is a co-production of Witness Docs and Critical Frequency. Our team includes Amy Westervelt, John Delore, Abigail Keel, Sarah Ventry, Peter Clowney, and me, Ash Sanders. Chris Bannon is Stitcher's Chief Content Officer. Our fact checker is Naomi Lachance. Our production assistant in Short Creek is Araya Hammond. Special thanks to David Fox for engineering help on this episode. Excerpts from Warren Jeff's Priesthood Record were read for us by David Giambuso. Our original score was composed and performed by Allison Leighton Brown. 
with Ollie Samland on pedal steel and Dan Bradigan on trumpet. Thanks to NPR member station KJZZ. This episode includes tape from interviews I did while working there in 2016 and 2017. And of course, we are so grateful to all the people of Short Creek who shared their stories with us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.